Would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 21. At this point in the life of the Apostle Paul, he has been on three missionary journeys. He has planted churches throughout the eastern half of the Roman Empire. He's written several letters of the New Testament. He has had numerous visions from the Lord. In fact, he's also been caught up to the third heaven, as he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You might expect that he would be somewhat of a celebrity by now, appearing on all the Christian talk shows. But when we come to Acts chapters 21 and 22, we find that Paul is the misunderstood missionary. In verses 1 to 16, Paul's friends misunderstood his plans. And they tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem because bonds and afflictions awaited him there. But Paul goes anyway because God called him and he was ready. In verses 17 to 26, the Jerusalem church misunderstood his message. They had heard that he was teaching Jewish believers to forsake the customs of the law and not to circumcise their children. And so Paul agreed to join four Jewish believers in the completion of their Nazarite vow in order to dispel those rumors. Now, whether that tactic worked or not, we don't know, because a third misunderstanding quickly arose, and that is that the Jews misunderstood his ministry, beginning in chapter 21 and verse 27. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him. While Paul was fulfilling the seven days of purification, trouble began to brew. And if you'll notice, this trouble did not originate with the Jews in Jerusalem. It originated with those from Asia. And though we're not told here specifically, they are probably from the city of Ephesus because that's the city that Paul spent almost all his time in, in Asia. It's a city that he received a lot of opposition in during his three-year stay there. And if you look at verse 29, the accusation against Paul is that he took a Gentile Trophimus into the temple, and Trophimus was from the city of Ephesus. So these Jews would know him firsthand. And so they stir up all the others, and they laid hands on Paul, verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, the accusation against Paul is threefold. He preaches against our people, Israel. He preaches against the law, and he preaches against this place, the temple. And then to substantiate those general accusations, Paul's accusers come up with a specific one. He has defiled the temple by bringing in Gentiles. Now, the outer court of the temple was known as the court of the Gentiles. It was as close as a Gentile could get in the worship of the God of Israel. And between that court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple, there was a four and a half high wall. And on that wall, there were warning signs that any foreigner who passed by that barrier would be punished by death. They accused Paul of having taken a Gentile beyond that barrier. Now, what evidence did they have? Verse 29, 
For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now that's a pretty airtight case, isn't it? They saw a Gentile with him in the city, and they supposed he must have brought him into the temple. One commentator I read suggested that Paul did take Trophimus into the temple, but that would be the last thing that Trophimus would do on this occasion. You remember, he's in the temple for one reason, and that is to appease the sensitivities of the Jews. There's no way he would bring a Gentile into the temple and upset the Jews and risk the life of Trophimus. Verse 30. And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, and if you'll notice the the end of verse 32, they stopped beating Paul. Now the Jewish pattern was to execute a person outside of the city. That's what they did with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. But on this occasion... This crowd is so incensed that they don't even bother to take Paul outside the city. They just take him outside the temple and they begin to beat him with the intention of killing him on the spot. They take him out of the temple and they say, Ah, this is far enough. Just close the door so we don't splatter any blood inside and we'll kill him here. And they began to beat him and would have killed him if not for what we read in verse 31. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now the headquarters for the Roman occupation forces was Fort Antonia. It stood at the northwest corner of the temple. It had a 100-foot-high tower on which the guards would stand and overlook the temple area. They always had extra guards at a time of year like this when there was a Jewish festival because they anticipated problems. And when this ruckus occurred in the courtyard, they were quick to come down the steps and be there. And it says the commander was there and centurions and soldiers. Now, a centurion was one who was over 100 men. And since it's in the plural here, it suggests to us that he had at least 200 soldiers with him. And when the Jews saw this formidable Roman militia, they stopped beating Paul. Verse 33. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. Because Paul was obviously the cause of the disturbance, They arrested him, and they bound him with two chains, probably chaining him to two soldiers, as was the case with Peter in Acts 12, 6. And, of course, this fulfilled the prophecy of Agabus in Acts 21, 11, that when Paul got to Jerusalem, he would be bound. And it also marks a transition in the book of Acts, because prior to this, Paul had ministered freely, with a few exceptions of some one-night stays in some nice prisons like Philippi. But he had been free to move around up to this point in the book of Acts. From this point to the end of the book, Paul will be a prisoner. But that doesn't stop his ministry. Because as he tells us in Ephesians 6.20, he is now an ambassador in chains. 
And after securing Paul, the commander began to ask the crowd, who is he and what has he done? Verse 34, but among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Like most crowds, they had reached the verdict long before they considered the evidence. In fact, they couldn't even agree on what the crime was that Paul had committed. And when the commander realized that it was fruitless to try to rationalize with this mob, instead he decided to take Paul into the barracks. Verse 35. And when he had got to the stairs, it, was, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, away with him. This crowd was crying out in Jerusalem what a similar crowd had cried out about 27 years earlier in reference to Jesus away with him. And they didn't mean just get him out of here. They meant kill him. And in fact, the crowd was so violent and so intense that the soldiers had to pick Paul up and carry him up the stairs. Verse 37, and as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Now, Paul had been silent up to this point. Now he requests of the commander that he can say something, and the commander is surprised that he speaks Greek. Now why is the commander surprised? Verse 38, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. This commander had already pegged Paul as one of Rome's ten most wanted an Egyptian assassin. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that about three years before this, an Egyptian terrorist came to Jerusalem claiming to be a prophet. And he led many followers after him. Here we're told 4,000 of them. They went out to the Mount of Olives, and this Egyptian, posing as a prophet, said, at my command, the walls of Jerusalem will fall down, and we'll all go in, and we'll overcome the Roman garrison. Well, you know what happened? the Roman garrison came out and overcame them, killing many, arresting most, and the Egyptian leader escaped. He was now a fugitive. You can imagine how this Egyptian fugitive who duped so many Jews would be received at this point in the city of Jerusalem. And so the commander, seeing this uproar, seeing them beating this man, hoping to beat him to death, figured that must be the Egyptian assassin. And so he pulls him aside. But when Paul speaks in Greek, he knows he's not the Egyptian. And so he says he must be somebody else. And so, verse 39, But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the city, or to the people. You know, this is an unusual request. Paul says, I want to speak to these people that have been beating me. If it was me, I'd say, get me into the fort, right? Paul says, I want to speak to them because he sees this as an opportunity. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission. Now, that may surprise you. Paul says, I want to speak to the people that have been beating me. And the commander says, all right, you have the form. You have the platform. 
That's a little surprising, but you have to remember, the commander has arrested Paul, put him in chains. He doesn't have any idea what crime he's committed. He asked the crowd, and they were so disorganized he couldn't find out from them. And so Paul says, may I speak? And he says, all right, you go ahead and speak, hoping that while Paul's speaking, he can figure out somehow what's going on here and what has caused this uproar. But if you'll notice verse 40, it says, And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. When I grew up, my dad used to to, uh, lead the young people at camp, and he always at camp would have a gesture that he would do this. He would stand and do this and say nothing, uh, waiting for everybody to be quiet. Uh, The only problem is he never really communicated very well what this meant. So I can see these images of my dad just standing there like this and everybody talking. Uh, Paul gestures to the people. We're not told what that gesture is, but it was something that communicated to be quiet. And they became quiet. But then if you'll notice, he started to speak to the people in Hebrew. Now, the commander says, he's talking to the commander in Greek. The commander says, yeah, you speak to the people. He starts to speak to the people. Now he's talking in Hebrew. The commander doesn't know Hebrew. So he's turning to his soldiers and saying, what's he talking about? Now, why did Paul speak to the people in Hebrew? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 22. And he said to them in Hebrew, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said. You see, when he spoke to them in Hebrew, that was the native tongue of Israel. And that said to these people, this guy's no outsider. He's one of us. And in verses 3 through 21, we have a record of Paul's message on this occasion. It's very interesting to compare Paul's message with the one recorded in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen gave. Both were essentially accused of the same things. But Stephen, on that occasion in Acts chapter 7, indicted the people. Paul, on this occasion, identifies with the people. Stephen stood back taking the posture of a prophet and pointed at them and called them a stiff-necked people. Paul gives a defense, as it says in verse 1. He was defending himself. Stephen gave the history of Israel all the way through the Old Testament. Paul gives the history of his own personal experience. Stephen's message was was cut short by his execution. Paul's message would have had a similar ending, if not for the Roman guards. And we can divide Paul's message into three parts. His credentials, his conversion, and his commission. And each part addresses one of the accusations against Paul. First of all, his credentials in verses 3 through 5. The crowd was accusing Paul of speaking against the Jews. Paul says, let me explain that. Verse 3, I am a Jew. He's speaking in Hebrew. What's his message? I am a Jew. And then he gives four credentials to substantiate that. First of all, his birth. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I wasn't a proselyte Jew. I was born a Jew. My birth proves that. Secondly, he talks about his upbringing. He says, but brought up in this city. 
I wasn't raised as a Hellenistic Jew in a Gentile city. I was brought up in the very city of Jerusalem, the holy city. Thirdly, he talks about his training. He says, educated under Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers. He wasn't educated by just anybody. He sat at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel, the most revered rabbi of that time. And Paul says, I didn't take electives. I was taught strictly according to the law. And then the fourth credential is his commitment. He says at the end of verse 3, being zealous for God. He wasn't just a nominal Jew. He was zealous for God. This education wasn't just an academic exercise. He was totally committed. And then if you'll notice the last phrase in verse 3, he says, zealous for God just as you all are today. That's interesting. Paul doesn't condemn them for their actions against him. He actually commends them for being zealous for God. And then Paul goes on to verify how zealous he was as a Jew. Verse 4, And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Paul says, I persecuted the church. I bound them. I put them in prison. I didn't give up until they were dead. And I showed no mercy. I did it to men and women alike. Verse 5, As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. Paul says, if you don't believe me, go ask the high priest. Go ask the council. What had they done? Verse 5, from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I was so zealous that I got letters from the high priest and the council to persecute Christians that had gone all the way to Damascus. And so to those who were accusing Paul of being anti-Semitic, Paul says, consider my credentials. I'm born a Jew, raised in Jerusalem, educated in the law, zealous for God. Then his second point is his conversion. The crowd was accusing Paul of speaking against the law. Paul says, let me explain that. Verse 6, And it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. As Paul was approaching Damascus with his letters authorizing him to arrest Christians, he was surrounded by a light. Now, this was no ordinary light. It was a light from heaven, and it was a light that was brighter than the sun because it came upon Paul at noontime. And actually, Paul saw more than just a light because verse 14 is going to tell us that he saw the righteous one. He saw Jesus in all his holiness and was blinded by his glory. Verse 7, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, if the light wasn't shocking enough, this question is more shocking. Because God wasn't appearing to Paul to reward him for his zealousness. He was appearing to Paul to reprimand him. In all his zealousness, Paul thought he was protecting God. Here he finds out that he is actually persecuting God. And so he's got a question of his own, verse 8. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? If I'm doing all this in opposition to you, then I must not really know who you are. 
So who are you? And then the answer comes at the end of verse 8. I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And that's the answer that turned Paul's world upside down. If there's one thing Paul thought he was sure of, it was that Jesus was an imposter. And now he sees Jesus risen and glorified on the road to Damascus. And then verse 9, And those who were with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Paul mentions these who were with him to corroborate the evidence. They also saw the light. They heard the voice, even though they didn't understand it. Verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? Paul's plans were to go to Damascus, persecuting Christians. Suddenly, he meets the Lord Jesus, and his plans are canceled. So in submission to the Lord, he says, what do I do next? And the Lord says, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. And then verse 11, but since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And I think Paul includes this detail because it's an apt description of his condition. He left Jerusalem thinking he could see it all. He arrived in Damascus seeing nothing and needing to get new sight from the Lord. And then verse 12, And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. Now, why doesn't Paul just describe Ananias as a Christian? Well, the answer is because he's speaking to a hostile Jewish crowd. And so he describes Ananias in such a way that would win their affinity. He says he was devout by the standard of the law, well spoken of by all the Jews, and he was obviously sent by God because he commanded Paul to receive his sight, and he did so immediately. And then he tells what his message was, verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. I want you to notice some significant phrases in Ananias' statement. Number one, Ananias calls God in verse 14, the God of our fathers. And that's an important statement because he's addressing a Jewish audience. And the Jews viewed Christians as apostates. They had left the true God and were worshiping a false God. And so Paul says, it's the God of our fathers. It's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so if the Jews were going to oppose what happened to Paul, they were actually fighting against the true God. Second phrase, God has appointed you in verse 14. That underlines the sovereignty of God. Who was responsible for the salvation of Paul? God was. There's no more classic case than this. Paul is on his way to Damascus wanting to eliminate Jesus. He's not going there seeking Jesus. He's wanting to eliminate him. And what happens? He meets the risen Lord. Last thing on his agenda, he comes to know the Lord because of the sovereignty of God. God appointed him. Third phrase says in verse 14, he appointed him to know his will. Now, Paul thought he knew God's will. 
He had been educated in the law. He was trained. He was intelligent. He knew a lot of things. But here we find out that he didn't know everything. There was something missing in his understanding. And what was it that was missing? Look at verse 14. To see the righteous, the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. Who is the righteous one? Isaiah 53, 11 tells us that's a title for Messiah. He was to see the Messiah and hear an utterance from his mouth. And what was that utterance? I am Jesus. You put those together and what do you have? Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what was missing from his understanding. That was God's will for him to know. And then the fourth phrase in verse 15, you will be a witness. What's a witness do? He tells what he's seen and heard. And that's what Paul had been doing for 20 years, telling what he had seen and heard, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then verse 16, Ananias continues and says, And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now there are three exhortations there and a result. Arise, be baptized, call on his name, and the result is wash away your sins. The question that many raise is, which exhortation resulted in Paul's sins being washed away? Was it arising? Was it being baptized? Was it calling on his name? Greek scholars say that the phrase, wash away your sins, is not connected to the exhortation, be baptized, but rather it's connected to the exhortation, calling on his name. But we don't have to be Greek scholars to figure that out. Because Paul had just re recently written the book of Romans. And there in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, he wrote these words, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. How are you saved? You are saved by calling on the name of the Lord. You see, Paul's sins weren't washed away by baptism. They were washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. And that's clarified clearly to us. If you go back to Acts chapter 9 and verse 17, you'll find out there that Paul was filled with the Spirit before he was baptized. You see, he was saved first, and then he was baptized. You say, well, why does Paul even put baptism in here? Why does he even bring it up on this occasion? Well, because the Jews understood the concept of baptism. In fact, when a Gentile became a Jewish proselyte, he was baptized. It was, the significance of it was he was putting off his past and his, his, his worship of idols in the past, and he was taking on and identifying with the God of Israel. But on this occasion, Paul's saying, I, a Jew, was baptized. What was Paul doing? He was putting himself away from the things he had trusted in the past, and he was identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So you see, Paul discovered something that day on the road to Damascus. He discovered that keeping the law couldn't wash away sins. And keeping the law couldn't bring him righteousness. Only one thing could, and that was calling on the name of Jesus the righteous one who washed away our sins on the cross of Calvary. Third point in his message is his commission in verses 17 to 21. The crowd was accusing Paul of speaking against the temple, and so Paul says, let me explain that, verse 17. And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, 
that I fell into a trance. Now, this is after Paul's conversion. Where do we find him? He's in the temple. He hasn't rejected his Jewish heritage. And while he's praying, he fell into a trance. Verse 18, And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I was in the temple praying. God appeared to me, and what did he say? Get out of Jerusalem. Verse 19, And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in thee. And when the blood of thy witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. Paul says, when God told me this in the temple, guess what? I argued with him. You ever argue with God? Paul says, I told him, I'll be a great witness in Jerusalem because I used to be a Christian killer. I'm more qualified than anybody else. I've got this great testimony. Let me tell it to the people of Jerusalem. And what was God's response? Verse 21, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul says, If it were up to me, I'd still be in Jerusalem preaching here. But God told me to leave the temple to leave Jerusalem, and to go to the Gentiles. And as he'll say later in Ephesians chapter 2, he was going out to bring both Jews and Gentiles into a living temple that's growing into the Lord. So Paul says, you say I speak against the Jews? Let me remind you of my credentials. I am a Jew. You say, I speak against the law? That's only because of my conversion. You see, I met the one who fulfilled the law. And I met the one who can do what the law can't do. Wash away sins and give me righteousness. You say, I speak against the temple? That's only because of my commission. God sent me to the Gentiles to incorporate them into the one and only temple of God. That's a powerful defense. What's the response? Verse 22. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They listened politely until Paul got to the statement where he said, God told me to go to the Gentiles. And so they said, The God of Israel would never do that. And so again, they're crying out for Paul's execution. Verse 23, and as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. I would say that's pretty berserk, wouldn't you? They're crying out, they're throwing their coats off, they're throwing dirt in the air. They are trying to express their horror at Paul. And verse 24, and the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Now, the Roman commander was not having a good day. I mean, Paul speaks to him in Greek. He says, all right, speak to the people. He starts speaking in Hebrew, and the, and the commander stand, can't hear a word he's saying. But he's probably encouraged because Paul speaks, and the crowd calms down. He thinks, I've got peace here. Everything's going well. Uh, we may get to play golf this afternoon, you know. And then, all of a sudden, the crowd breaks loose again, and they're worse than ever. And he doesn't have a clue what's going on. So he says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm taking you into the barracks, and we're going to get a confession out of you. We're going to scourge you into confessing. 
Now the scourge was a whip that had many leather thongs and embedded in those leather thongs were little pieces of bone and metal. And they would use it on the bare back of a man until they plowed his back into hamburger meat. That's what they did to the Lord Jesus before he carried the cross up to Mount Calvary and that's why he couldn't even carry it the whole distance. And so verse 25 says, and when they had stretched him out with thongs. That's interesting too. They, they, they stretched him out to make his back taut so that, so that it would be more, uh, so that the back would respond even better to this beating. So as they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? They're stretching Paul out and he said, I just have one question for you. Is it legal to do this to a Roman who hasn't had a trial? That's not legal. So notice the response, verse 26. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you, what are you, gonna, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Now at this time, Roman citizen was, citizenship was highly prized. It was a great right. It was only conferred on those who had high governmental standing, those who had done some exceptional service for Rome, or those who could afford to bribe a corrupt administrator. And when you became a citizen in Rome, your name was listed on a, on a ledger in the city of Rome. It was also listed in your hometown municipal ledge of the Roman citizens. You got a diploma as a Roman citizen, usually kept in your family archives, and you got a toga to wear. Although the toga was so cumbersome, almost no one wore it. Whenever somebody was a Roman citizen, they didn't have to have a little voting card that they carried around. They took your word for it. If you said, I'm a Roman citizen, they took your word for it because the punishment for lying about that was death. And so Paul raises the issue of his being a Roman citizen, and when they ask him, he says, yes, I am. And the, and the commander says, I had to pay a lot of money to get this. And Paul says, I was born that way. Now, that's unusual because Paul was a Jew. Jews were slaves. They, were, they had come into Rome as slaves. So somebody in Paul's family back there had done some special service for Rome and been given citizenship and now Paul was born into that citizenship and had that unique right. And when he told them about that right, verse 29, Therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. When he discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen, he realized he was about to make two mistakes. Number one, he'd already bound him with chains, which was illegal. And number two, he was about to scourge him. And so this brought an immediate halt to the proceedings. And the commander will try a different tactic that we'll see next week. Paul was a misunderstood missionary. But in closing this morning, I just want to remind you of how Paul is an example to you and me. Because he gives us an example of how to handle negative circumstances five things. Number one, he accepted them as from God. He was told ahead of time that when he got to Jerusalem, there would be bonds and afflictions awaiting him. And so when they came, he calmly accepted them from God. Do you realize that as a Christian, you have been promised the same thing?
2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you can plan on persecution. And when it comes, we need to accept it as from God. Secondly, he used his circumstances as an opportunity. The crowd had not gathered that day to hear Paul preach. They had gathered to beat him to death. But Paul used that opportunity to tell them how Jesus had changed his life. And if Paul can use negative circumstances like that, then you and I can use the circumstances that we find ourselves in this week. Third, Paul was kind toward his persecutors. He didn't threaten them. He didn't seek revenge. In fact, he addressed them courteously in verse 1 as brethren and fathers. He assigned to them the best possible motive in verse 3. He was kind. Fourth, he exalted the Lord. He didn't focus on his own achievements. He focused on what God had done to him and despite him. And then fifth, he was motivated by love. It was love for the Jewish believers that had brought Paul to Jerusalem to bring that gift. It was love for his weaker brothers that had brought Paul into the temple. And it was love for his unsaved countrymen that led Paul to evangelize this hostile crowd. Next time you find yourself as a misunderstood missionary, let's follow the example of Paul. In negative circumstances, he accepted them from God, used them as an opportunity to testify. He was kind, he exalted the Lord, and he was motivated by love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Challenge our hearts with the example of Paul. To this week, be witnesses for you of what we have seen and heard, the reality of Jesus Christ. And Lord, even in circumstances that seem impossible, cause us to find the opportunities to serve you there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.